Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. something, these are the kind of things that Darwin was troubled by, the idea of doing something that seems like it's against your best interests, or your, well, he would, he, Darwin wouldn't have said against your gene's best interests, but against the individual's best interests. Hamilton looked at it from the gene's point of view, the idea of gene level selection instead of individual level selection is something that was pioneered by Richard Dawkins, uh, the soft gene, great book, read the book. Um, and if you think of R as your relatedness, so like you and your, one of your parents is 0.5, you and your brother or sister is 0.5, you and a uh, uncle or aunt is 0.25, you and a half brother or sister is 0.25, you and a cousin is 0.125, that kind of thing. Um, and C is the cost, the fitness cost, and B is the benefit, the fitness benefit. Um, you're going to do a behavior if R is greater than C over B. Okay? This is the idea that would you give your life for a brother and only you would for two brothers? Because it's 2 times 0.5 is 1.0 of U. Okay? So that's Hamilton's idea. And theoretically, it makes great deal of sense. And Hamilton was a theoretical population biologist, so this is the kind of thing you do, this kind of modeling. Okay? Now, how do we, the interesting question then, psychologically, is this may describe the behavior, but how would the mechanism work? There's got to be some sort of proximate mechanism to make this work. Right? See, for a father, or sorry, it's easy for a mother or father and a child. You know it's your kid. <clears throat> Especially the mother, right? Fathers, you should be pretty sure that it's their kid. It's a little harder for the kid to the parent, but again, it's doable. And we can have a, me a mechanism there, which would be something like if you've got early experience with someone and you're always around them, and they're a lot older than you, it's probably your parent. Okay? So that's an easy mechanism. So for relatives, it might be pretty easy. It would be a learning mechanism. Right? So for relatives, we've got a learning mechanism. And in fact, when you look at things like the incest taboo in humans, Incest is not an accepted behavior. And when you think about it in a cold, calculating way, you might think, wait a second, I know this person better than any, I know anybody. They're an available meeting partner. People don't. And that's cross-cultural. People don't do this. We, we, we lock people up when they do this. We're disgusted by this. Well, it's good that you don't meet with your sister, your brother, or whatever, 
because of the idea of recessive genes, right? Because you're more likely to get two bad copies of the gene. Okay. Well, we've evolved a mechanism for recognizing brothers or sisters, and we don't mate. Even when it's encouraged to mate with people that we are similar to, uh, friends with. In, in, in kibbutzes in Israel, which are communal farms, um, it's a big social movement in Israel. And kids are raised communally. Okay? Now, they're raised communally, this, this, I know this is sound bad, but it's actually apparently really idyllic. It's kind of a cool way to live. Um, the kids all live together. The parents live separately, and they see each other on weekends, which is not that different than the way most people are with their kids normally, when you think about it. Usually you see your kids for an hour or two a day, and you put them to sleep. You see, they see their kids all the time, it's not like it's a problem, but they're, the kids are together always. Okay? Because it's a social movement, kids in these, that live in these influences are encouraged to marry within their kibbutz. And these are you know, thousands of people. They're like small towns. And they don't. They find it gross. It's like it's their sister or brother. The most recent data, I've seen this quite old, in the early 1990s, um, there have been 14 marriages within kibbutzes. And there have been hundreds and thousands of people who have lived in that environment. Kind of cool. Yeah, Isn't there an effect called like the Westmark effect or something like that? I don't know what that means. Tell me about it. Oh, it's it's um, like a psychological effect that mm -hmm. stops brother and sister from. Well, this is, well, if that's what's called, right? This is the idea. The idea here is that what we've got is something that allows us to recognize kin. You can recognize your brother or sister. Because, and what's the mechanism? Well, I grew up beside them all this time. They must be my brother or sister. And it's funny because the adopt, kids that are, uh, families that have adopted kids in them are still disgusted by the notion of mating with their adopted brother or sister. Yet it's completely sensible to. I'm not saying it's right or good. You know, I'm saying from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes complete sense. You know the person well. You know their good and bad points. Why not? Because you see them as a brother or sister. And you go, ooh. You know. So we can see how it would work within a family. Okay? So that's good. But what about everybody else? Because for this sort of gene level natural selection to work, I have to recognize if I'm going to make a decision between. Uh, oh, sorry, Matthew. I just have a question about yeah. You know, a lot of times when you're um, in school with people, like you're since like you're kindergarten. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is there any? There's less meaning of between those between people like that rather than people a little bit further out here. It's not quite the same though because you're not living in the same house. All that. Mm -hmm. It's a little less likely. Yeah. But people do get together that have been together in school since kindergarten. It does happen, and people aren't disgusted by it. Right, whereas your adopted brother or sister, you are. Even if the adoption happens when someone's like 12 years old, there's some sort of mechanism that says, no, that's a brother, uh-uh, no. Good question. Um, 
But if I'm going to make a decision between uh, helping Josh or helping Jesse with something, now what I have to do is I have to somehow very quickly calculate how much of my genes do they share. Of course, I'm not aware of this calculation. I'm not sort of it's like Terminator. You know, like, <laughs> the ultimate example of Ghost in the Machine, Terminator, right? Because he's got this output onto his eye and he's reading it. Why does he have to do that? Couldn't he just think it? Well, it would make for a bad movie. But <laughs> it's lovely sort of Deus Ex Machina kind of thing. But anyway, I've got to make a decision. I'm going to help either Josh or Jesse. I have to very quickly determine, do I share a specific gene with Josh or Jesse? Josh or Jesse? Why did I pick two names that were hard to say together? Um, this is the idea. It's called the Green Beard Hypothesis. This was uh, Robert Tripper's idea. Sorry, Pat. Um, if we could say that I'm going to help people that carry this certain gene I have for, for, for having a green beard. Now, no one has a green beard. It's just hypothetical. The allele itself produces a phenotype, green beard. Easy to recognize a green beard. That would be a great Halloween costume. Just a bunch of guys wearing green beards saying, we just share genes. And then nobody would get it, and that's the best kind of Halloween costume. <laughs> my favorite ones are when no one gets them except like one person. I have a t-shirt that one person has got the joke about in my whole life. And it's like, well, it's not until it doesn't really fit me very well. And then I give it to Jonathan, but you know, you saw if you were wearing behavior, you saw the size of that kid, it doesn't really fit him anymore either. My favorite kind of jokes, what's well, only I get. Anyway, so now that gene's gonna allow me to recognize that there's a carrier in front of me. So it's supposed to produce a phenotype and produce a recognition mechanism. That seems possible. That's going to be hard for a single gene to do. But it's an interesting sort of starting point. It's a starting point. Oh, we Phone. That's great. Hello? Hi. Who's you? Okay, I think you have to remember. Okay, bye. <laughs> 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 so the person said, doesn't sound like this. Who's you? Yeah, it's a weird road number. I've often wondered why there are telephones in the class. But I think it's for calling IT, seriously. I think that's like the reason people use it. You know, ordering pizza <laughs> to class, right? Like in Fast Times Rick on High. I did that. I did, we did that in high school. We ordered pizza to our chemistry class. Just because we'd seen Fast Times Ridge Mile. And it worked. I came. The only people who weren't allowed to eat it were me and Brent, the guys that ordered the pizza. The teacher's like, everyone come up here. It's like, that's how we talk, by the way. Everyone come up and have a piece of pizza except David and Brent. We also went start with our Bunsen burner and started making Lipton Cup, Lipton cup of soup. <laughs> did you bring enough for everyone? Yeah, actually, because <laughs> he knew he was going to ask that. I said, bring it up. Oh, I was a dick. Um, okay. So, that mechanism, we can see how conceivably, uh, was I saying, yes, oh yeah, the single gene, remember we had the uh, two kinds of crickets, and they, a single gene produces a song, 
and produces the song preference. So it's possible. But it still seems kind of out there. So proximity, as we talked about this already, that's an easy mechanism, that's a learning mechanism. So families. So there's little dispersal within a family. So if you are someone you see from close by, you are related. So it's going to go from being, say, an incest taboo to someone that you would do something for. Say someone you grew up, grew up with in school and such. So in that mechanism, when we talked about, that seems kind of reasonable. Here's an example. That leaf-eating ants, which a lot of ants, that's what they do. Nests that are far away from each other, the individual is more hostile to each other. What do we do? We take the nests and we just put them together. Or take individuals, drop them together. Yes. Are they on different plants that are more hostile to each other than if they're on the same plant? Okay. Okay, that fits, right? So far this fits. Well, the next step is we split the colony in, in half. We take a single colony, and we split it in half and put them on different plants. Okay. Wait, wait, wait a few weeks, have a couple generations go through, then put them together. They're hostile to each other, but they don't hurt each other. They're not injurious. They don't rip each other to shreds. If you ever see ants fighting, it's ugly. They, they rip their heads off each other, things like that. They rip the heads, this is interesting, they'll rip the heads off the adults, then if they take a whole nest, they'll take the larvae away and make them slaves. It's like making ants. This is why I'm kind of afraid of social insects. They're organized. I like the board. Before we're like them, I think the board we designed them. They have a queen. So that's the gene environment interaction right there, baby. There it is. They get hostile with each other, but it's like, I think that's my long lost cousin aunt. <laughs> that was the clause. That's what I was doing. <laughs> that's cool. That's pretty cool. With vervet monkeys, you think, well, that's ants. They're weird, they're social insects, they frighten us. What about vervet monkeys? A little closer, more closely related, little guys about this big. Two-year-old vervet monkey screams. It sounds like it's the start of the worst Bruce Springsteen song ever. Two-year-old <laughs> vervet monkey screams. Down the Jersey Shore. And there's a little harmonica. Um... The mother comes, it really somehow strikes me as a Springsteen song. Um, the others watch the mother, they don't come and help. The mother recognizes her own kids screaming, but everybody else does too. They're like, yeah, it's your, it's your kid, you deal with it, man. I'm not helping. She's recognizing her own young from a scream, not from close by. Hmm. 
Okay. Now, bees are cool, also frightening. Now they're social insects that are all, now they're armed. I don't like bees very much. I have been stung once by a wasp, well, twice in the same leg. Damn wasp and their double stings. They scare me. So remember, bee-relatedness and allowing bees into a colony or not. Because, you know, bees go out, basically they forage, they come back, they, 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 they go back into the colony, they do a little dance language, which we'll talk about, which is very cool, and they tell the other bees where the food is. But what if you're like an invading bee? Well, you've got to somehow recognize that you belong to this colony, that you belong here. Our old slogan, right? Whereas the old Elmo University slogan, you belong here. <laughs> Which I always thought was kind of like a summer slogan anymore, but it used to be, and you take it so many ways. You belong here. That's nice. You, you belong here. Which is nice. You know, you'll know the emphasis, maybe you'll call me somewhere, and the whole thing changes. You belong here. You know, I'm glad they changed it. Um, okay. So what we have here is the effect of the coefficient relationship. So that's 0 to 1.0 is you to yourself. Okay. Um, and then proportion of passes by uh, intruding bees. In other words, these are the ones that, by introduced bees, these are the ones that get the, the likelihood of getting in and the likelihood of you being related. Oh, look, it's a freaking straight line. Nice. Very nice. Okay. It's probably from a odor. Just guess. Pheromone. Oh man, yeah, there are spikes in the roof. <laughs> Someone mentioned the other day it was Lori Bloomfield said, "Really, there were spikes in the roof of that? Oh my! I hope the ceiling doesn't fall because that would be bad. But then it'd be like, oh, the ceiling's falling on me, and now there are spikes in my head. <laughs> sort of a Phineas Gage thing. <laughs> okay." So that's probably how that's working, is by some sort of odor mechanism. This happens in people, by the way. If you take a look at people and their friends, and you relate, you take a look at the people, rate how closely they feel, like how close the friendship is, and then you correlate that with their blood type, you're more likely to have the same blood type as your friends than you are with strangers. Work done by Anne Story at Maureen Mercy Newfoundland. <clears throat> you are more likely, if you, you got friends, what, these, these are kind of neat experiments. What you do is you give people a clean t shirt and you have them sweat in you. Can't wear deodorant. They just work out for half an hour. Then you take the t shirt and you have someone smell the t shirts. And people are rate the smell being more gross from people they aren't close friends with. But they don't know. You're smelling something like good. It's not like that. You're actually smelling the person's armpit. You're smelling a t-shirt. You don't know who's who. Human mothers can recognize their own baby's poo by smell. And everybody's, these are all breastfed kids. So they're all getting basically the same food. We have some mechanism for doing this. It's pretty neat. We don't know how we do it. 
And like, it's not like when you become friends with somebody, you say, wait, there's a rigorous application procedure, there's a blood test involved. Um, you don't do that. Yet somehow we do. Ann Story, who did this stuff on the blood type, has done so much great work on like mating and, and herring bells, and she's got like a field site that's uh, just off the coast of St. John's. It's beautiful, but the, you know, but she's known for this thing about blood type, which is really talking about people kind of like, well, it's other great stuff. Her and I once took um, a piece off an iceberg because we wanted to put it in our gin tonic. I was visiting, giving a talk in St. John's, and um, there was an iceberg. We saw it. It's like, well, we've got to get some so we can put it in our drinks. Go back to your place. We'll put it in a cooler. Oh, Jesus, we've got to cut through these people's yard. I said, yeah, just follow my lead. She said, well, we can't. I said, yes, we can. We're scientists from the university. <laughs> so we're walking through. What do you guys do? Our scientists from the university. And I'm wearing a, a jacket that said one on it. And uh, it just says, as you can see, this is the uh, type K12 bird. We should get a uh, sample. I'm just making shit up right now. Chips are rough. You just got it. It's all confidence. I'm crashing a wedding. You just got to know how to do it. I'll tell you that story some other time. Um, not with the story. That's a different one. But anyway. Okay. Questions about this? About the idea of. The mechanism for inclusive fitness, for, for making these decisions. This is powerful stuff. This tells us that, we talked about this, if you took the evolutionary psychology class with me last year, this helps us understand why racism exists. Because a long time ago, when people look different from you, chances are they were less related to you than you'd expect. With the greater in. It's not really like that anymore. Move to the populations. But it's an obvious tag. Right? Doesn't make it right. But the cool thing, and Dawkins talks about this in the selfish gene, he says, the next thing about being a human is you can know this. You can know that you might have that reaction to someone who looks different than you, who has a different religion to you, who wears a different religious hat than you. Go back. Who uh, somebody who speaks a different language than you. Sault Ste. Marie to Quebec 20 years ago. See, I'm balanced being fair and balanced there. So you say I'm gonna have that reaction, but I'm not going to behave that way today, and that's the cool thing. A chimp can't do that. A human can go, so those people speak a different language than me. I'm not gonna think that they're bad or good, they just are. That's something humans can do with other animals, can't Other animals don't ask these questions with us. All right, questions about that or comments? Again, then they get right, but it makes you double recognize it. It doesn't justify the behavior. Just because things are natural doesn't make them good or bad. Right? Natural isn't necessarily good. Poop is natural. Can I eat some? <laughs> no. But it's all natural. I don't take the mushrooms, you know, because they're natural. <laughs> Cocaine's natural. Load up. <laughs> Please. Okay. Some 
Conclusions about inclusive fitness. Came up funny. Uh, group selection is pretty silly. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Individual selection is pretty cool. That's what Darwin talked about. Uh, gene level selection is really cool. Dawkins talks about how we are basically just machines to carry our genes around to get them to replicate. Hamilton, genius. That's just genius thinking. Don't we use this? This is one of those things, again, I was talking about this the other day. You keep thinking about, oh, this is, uh, oh, I see, there's an evolutionary explanation for this. Oh, I see, I recognize the Don't overdo that. Because you can. It's very easy. It's very tempting for something that has this much explanatory power. But it does give us some insight, as I said, into some rather nasty human behavior towards people that are different from you, whoever you are. It's interesting that, for example, people have no problem with the notion. If I said to you, there's no, they have no problem with the notion, most people, I'm not saying everybody in the room, most people don't have a problem with the notion of eating dead cows because they're delicious. Most, pe most people don't have a problem with that. I'm not saying everybody, I'm saying most people. And I don't want to get into an animal rights argument. It's not, this is not the place. Buy me a lot of liquor, we'll do that together. Um, but if I said to you, what about dogs? You go, uh, you know, or horses. Except they're just meat. What's the difference? Well, we've been around dogs and horses a lot longer, we've, you know, and we've used them as, we've had to get a bond with them. Right? The dogs have kind of, and the horses to a lesser extent have taken advantage of this. There's a great uh, episode of the, of, uh, what's it called, that podcast, uh, Big Picture Science, it was just that, we don't wait to it in the blog about co-evolution between dogs and humans and some other cool evolution stuff. So I'll link to that. And I mean, it's been a long time since dogs and, the dogs and humans have been together. So it's interesting. Are there cultures where dogs are eaten? Yeah. But it's not common. It's in fact the, it's the uncommon one. And in fact, the fact that we have one basically or two that do this and a bunch of others don't should tell us something. All right. So any questions about that or comments? Okay. So animals tend to behave in ways that maximize their inclusive fitness. I think that's a pretty safe statement. And it's usually a pretty straightforward thing. Do I give parental care to my young? And it can be any animal here, this does parental care. Or to the young of someone else. Well, I pick mine that related to me. That's pretty straightforward. But usually it's actually most decisions aren't that straightforward. We sometimes have to know what the other members of our species are doing before we adopt a strategy. And I'm using no here is, a, is is you don't have to actually have knowledge of it. it it's a it's a short form. It's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
Yeah, short form, shorthand. Like I'm not saying there's actual knowledge going on, but there has to. It has to be affecting the behavior somehow. What if your mating call is dreamed up by other calls? So everybody's doing a mating call. A bunch of male, I don't know, crickets are together, and they're all doing a mating call. So much so that your mating call doesn't get hurt. What should you do? You can keep trying. Well, here's a possibility. But instead, let's say everybody has a meeting call at 11.45 tonight. And you pick the time. You don't know that that's when crickets do meeting calls. And let's say they all stop at 12.15. Again, I'm making these numbers up. They start at 11.45. They end at 12.15. OK, great. Probably would tell us then the females are listening when most of them between 11:45 and 12:15. Well, there's a why don't I start at 12:30? Well, there won't be a whole lot of female crickets listening, but I'll be the only one singing. Okay. So now I start to get a whole bunch of an advantage, don't I? Except that now, what happens? My genes then spread, and now my young, the males, start calling at 1250, whatever the hell it was I said later. So I'm going to make a decision, and again, this is shorthand, decision is not like a cricket sitting in the lunch should I start rubbing my legs together to make a meeting call. No, it's an evolutionary decision, okay? So it becomes a game. We look at this in terms of a game. So in certain situations, uh, certain cases, payoffs, and they, which are fitness maximizations, they depend on what rest, the rest of the population is doing. And in fact, it's probably the case that this is much more common than the case of, is it, this is my young, and this is someone else's young, I'll be nicer to my young. When the payoff to one individual depends on the behavior of others, we cannot use the principle of fit, fitness, fit, fitness maximization until we know the following, what the alternatives are. Now that really helps, actually. What the alternatives are. The probability of encountering the alternatives, I never said there would not be math. There's a little bit of math there. It's easy math you could have done in grade seven. Don't be frightened. But I failed grade seven math. <laughs> Grade 13 algebra, I failed the test on probabilities. And now I can talk about it, so I'll feel bad. But really, grade 7 math's easy, you shouldn't have failed it. Um, it's be okay, it'll be okay. I promise. So, what are the alternatives? What are the probabilities encountering the alternatives? Right? And what are the consequences of those encounters? So again, what are the alternatives? Well, with our, with our cricket example, it's do I call at 11.15 or did I say 12.45? Let's go at 12.45. What is the probability of me encountering another group of crickets that are calling at, say, 12, uh, 11, what was it, 11.45, 12.59? I'm so lost at this point. And what happens if I do encounter 
a population that is doing that. Okay. So this all comes down to game theory. So this is like a game. Each individual's behavior is its strategy. And the payoffs are in units of fitness. This is obviously theoretical, okay? This isn't actual animals we're talking about right now. We're talking about numbers. <laughs> that was weird being in this room. So I was like just playing with the animals, kind of lured down. And I was got my head at some kind of really kind of cool smoky jazz bar. You <laughs> 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 walk in there, it's like a Humphrey Bogart movie. <laughs> Perhaps a couple of Nazi collaborators in the corner and resistance are over here. I watch a lot of horror movies. I um, what players produce is more players. <laughs> it's the offspring. Okay? okay. <laughs> Changes in fitness are directly proportional to payoffs. I'm making some assumptions. To leave prop doors open with uh, barricades and rocks and stuff. Someone had uh, a door prop propped open with a rock. Person fell, went right through a door, glass door. maximizes payoffs. So again, you can see here that this matters what the other guy's doing. And I'm going to have the classic example here in a sec. It was used by John Manerset, but we'll get into that in a moment. So it's an ESS. An ESS is one that when enough individuals adopt, adopt it, it maximizes payoffs for individuals. So you can see, I care about what others do to decide what to do, but it's how it affects me individually it matters. Okay. Here we go. A pure strategy is one that cannot be replaced. This is one that everyone does. Food storing, for example. Every member of food storing species store food. It's not like there are non-food storing black-eyed chickens, for example. All black-eyed chickens store food. You have to recover your own seeds. This was uh, determined by Anderson and Krebs in 1978. That's not the Krebs cycle, Krebs. That's the Krebs cycle's son, John Krebs. Baron, Lord, Sir, John Krebs. He's a knight. Goes into biology after his father wins the Nobel Prize for physiology and medicine. I know John known for a long time. I would say to him, if my dad had won a Nobel Prize in, you know, this, I would have gone into like, I don't know, NASCAR racing. <laughs> and then of course he's British. What is NASCAR? <laughs> well, it's like Formula One, except fewer supermodels, and they just go around in circles. 
Not nearly as awesome. You have to recover your own seeds. Um, the, the original idea, or one of the original ideas about food storing was that it's a big socialist paradise. That everybody's recovering each other's seeds. We all store seeds and recover them for each other. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Little marks for you there. Carl, my brochure. Nothing? No? Okay. Um, well, think about it. And people thought this. People thought that birds went and stored seeds. And then they went out later and found seeds. And they were each other's seeds. And it was just a wonderful place. Nature is not a socialist paradise. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Guess what happens if, okay, you guys are all going to be communally storing seeds. You're all out storing seeds. This is for the good of my species. You know what I do? I don't do anything. I'm not storing any seeds. Screw you. I, apparently, you're all doing it for me. So I'm just not going to store it all. I'll take that extra energy from storing. I don't know. When you're out storing food, I'll kill all your young. That'll be funny. And then um, I'll show that all the food you're storing. I didn't have to do anything, losers. Guess who wins the evolutionary war? Who's got two wings and wins that one? This guy. See, because I'm a bird. Wow. You can see how I have to recover my own seeds. I have to recover my own seeds. Not, we don't store communally. And this was a mathematical model that Krebs, Anderson Krebs came up with that said, if this is to evolve, you have to recover your own seeds. You can't be recovering each other's. Except by chance. Right? So it's a pure strategy. Food storing involves recovering your own seeds, or whatever the hell it is you're storing. One of my favorite food storing birds is the shrike, because it catches small animals and impales them on sticks. And eats them later. That's awesome. I was kind of wanting to get a few shrikes. Be bloody though. I'd be afraid of the shrike. I mean, they're only about that big, but it's still a little disturbing. It's kind of a psychotic, you know, it's like a, like a bird that should be part of the soprano family. <laughs> you know, it's a little. Okay. So, do you see why that's a pure strategy? Because it cannot be defeated. Whereas the strategy of Everybody store communally. Well, that was group selection. You should have noticed that anyway. It's going to disappear. The selfish always win. Okay. I have a question. Yes, please. But it's a great strategy, right? What is it? The just taking everyone else's. That would be, which would make food storing disappear. Right, but then it eventually, if it caught on, then everyone would want to steal things. And then, and then there'd, be no food, there'd be no food store. But couldn't, like, something But if the storing that evolved was communal, it would disappear. The only thing that's going to show up and maintain itself is going to be storing food and recovering your own food. Right? Because every time this communal storing kind of shows up, if it ever does, it's going to disappear. Because the lazy will win. 
right? It's that, the, the, the storing, the, 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 basically the lazy gene, the non-communal storing gene, is going to spread very quickly. Because it's got, that, that animal has all kinds of extra time. Right? I just thought it could like, have, like, you know, talk about frequency and selection. Yeah, but the thing is, <coughs> the advantage wouldn't be there. What's the advantage to storing communally? But the disadvantage is huge, which is everybody else can get your seeds too. So you've taken all that effort to find food, which That's is why they're storing But if you take other animals' things, the other animals disappear very quickly. Right? That strategy is gone. Right? Unlike something like hawks and doves. You know, remember, these are not hawks or actual doves. These are strategies. There's a, it comes from a term from, the, from um, uh, during the Vietnam War. There were two strategies, two kinds of people in the States that were like doing working in the State Department and the Defense Department, there were hawks that wanted to put more troops into Vietnam and doves that wanted to pull people out. And you'll hear that term used today. A hawk is someone that's more likely to use military force and a dove is someone more likely to not use it. Okay, so that's where the terms come from. So this is a fighter or a not fighter. So they're not actual hawks and doves. It's, and the strategies of these are very simple strategies. Always fight or always give up. And the first blush, you might think giving up is probably a bad strategy. But wait. We have to look at the payoffs for hawks and doves. And again, please remember, these are not actual hawks, actual doves. No hawks or doves were harmed in the filming of today's episode. So we also have to look at the costs. Determine what proportion should be hawks and what proportion should be doves. Because these are actually two pretty, we talked about this the other day, Maddie's right, we talked about free frequency advantage selection. I was sort of previewing this. There are times when one's going to make sense, the times the other one's going to make sense. But depending on how many hawks or doves are around, who knows? It might be, make sense to be a hawk, it might make sense to be a dove. So let's say it's all doves. We're starting out with a population of all doves, everyone. The way that they determine who gets a resource is they do a display. And whoever can hold the display for the longest gets it. Something like that. And they split. If the hawk shows up, it wins the resource. So dove is a resource, and there's a dove doing this display. Roddy kid, I don't know what's what I was going for. Hawk shows up, smacks him in the head, and takes it. And that's very impressive. Now I'm going to kick your ass and take your food. Hawk win. This spreads its genes very quickly because it's winning all the time. If everybody's nice and there's one tough guy, tough guy wins. And when he wins, he spreads his genes, right? Because it's a fitness payoff. Now there's hawks everywhere. Oh, now you're fighting. See, before, you come up, you go to attack, and it goes, oh, no, 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 you can have it. Would you like my watch as well? You can take whatever you'd like. I'm a dove. I'm a lover, not a fighter.
two hawks get together. They start fighting. Ah, now there's injury. The probability of an injury is 0.5 because one guy wins, one guy loses. We're making it simple. Winner, it doesn't get hurt. Loser is hurt. So what's the probability of winning? It's 0.5. So the probability of being injured is 0.5. Make sense? So the probability of getting injured is 0.5 because the winner doesn't get hurt and the loser does get hurt. Okay? So half the time you win, half the time you lose. That really pays off to be a dub, doesn't it? Because you don't get hurt. No, 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 go ahead. Take it, take it, take it. You can have it. I'm a dub. So now that pays off. That starts to spread. They're both good when rare, those two strategies. But they're bad when common. Because they can be taken over. Okay, let's get all mathematicalized. V is the value of the resource for the winner. W is the cost of a wound. T is the cost of display. In other words, there's no fighting, that's the, that's the dove. Just the cost of the display. It takes time, that's why it's T. You're wasting time doing a dance of some sort. This is what the winner gets. This is what the loser gets if he gets his ass kicked. This is John Maynard Smith's idea from 1978. And we still talk about it today. Okay, questions so far? We're basically, we're going to simplify this down to a thing where we can turn it into a game. Okay. So we set up a payoff matrix. You get the reference, the matrix. He goes in his head, he learns Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't matter to me if you don't get it. I thought it was funny. Okay, here we go. Here's your payoff matrix. This is the payoff received by a hawk or a dove when it goes into a hawk or a dove. When a hawk fights a hawk, that's an old song, isn't it? When a hawk fights a... No, it isn't. That's when a man loves a woman. Um, so when a hawk fights a hawk, half the time, well, if you win, you get resource value. But, but if you lose, you get, you get your ass kicked. The hawk hits a dove. Victory! Gets the, gets the value. Standing. If a dove runs into a hawk, it's nothing. It's like, no, you can have it. I've been wasting my time doing my display to you. If a dove runs into a dove, they split it, half times V, but they both take, but it took, it took me time.
time it takes for to go out and get new resources to survive? That, that the T is just time displayed. That's going to be factored. You would, if you could factor that in, that's going to make this even more complicated. Because let's say you're in a situation where uh, resources are here. Yep. That's you could do that, but that would make this even more complicated. Um, you can make these things. Uh, see, right now we just have two strategies, talking about. But we could have hawk, dove, and uh, I don't know something else. Um, there's a lot of times when we look at these strategies and we use three and four and five strategies. Plus, throwing in these extra things like travel time. For example, we'll come here talking about all this extra time takes we'll find new source. That would be the same for everybody. Right? Because it's going to be the same. If I lose, I'm still going to find something else and it's rare. Right? So that should be the same for everybody. Half the time, that's right. Because it's only, it's only half the time. See, we can also have a strategy of really good harmony. <laughs> you know, something like that. But we, these things are kept pretty simple. Now, of course, again, this is, this is how Maynard Smith introduces the idea. I'll talk about some practical applications of this in a moment. Like, well, I wouldn't call them practical so much. Really, very little of this is curing cancer. Uh, but, uh, Real-world applications, let's say. Okay, so an ESS, evolutionarily stable strategy, so we're looking at here. If W is greater than V, there can be no pure ESS. In other words, if the cost of a wound is greater than the value of the resource, we have a population. We have a population of hawks. A small number of doves will do better than hawks all the time. The expected value, in this case then, what you get out of it, of a dove running into a hawk is greater than a hawk running into a hawk, so the dove always wins, if this is the case. If the, value of a, if, the, if, the, if the value of a wound, which is negative, is greater than this, if it hurts, you get it, but you're almost dead, fighting didn't make any sense. So hawks disappear. The expected value of a dove running into a hawk is zero, but that's better than, yeah, because that's always going to be the same. Now the expected value of a hawk running into a hawk is going to be a half V minus W. W is greater than V. We've established this. This is just, it isn't always, these aren't, this isn't the real world. This is theoretical population biology. Now, you should be therefore half of that is less than zero, and don't be a hawk. If wounds hurt so much that it costs more to get something than the value of the thing, don't fight over it. If you're fighting over GTA 5, and you're in line, and you go to jail, the value of GTA 5 drops tremendously. I read that thought of a video game people lined up for it. Those of you not scoring at home. It's 
sort of an unfortunate thing that this little bloat thing is like, it's not a negative. Just a bullet. Okay. Pure dubs aren't good either. Pay off to a hawk. V, he wins. He gets the thing. Pay off to doves is less than that. It's a half of the value of the thing minus the time. So you can see a pure strategy isn't going to work. We can't have pure hawks. We can't have pure doves. What shall we do? We have to find values that are going to make this worthwhile. They're, they're going to sort of solve the equation in essence what we're going to do. So the, what proportion of hawks and doves does it make to balance things out? Okay. Find the proportion P of hawks. Hawks of hawks? Of hawks, such the following equation balances. times half V minus W equals 1 minus P of V. This is proportion of hawks. So I got hawks should equal doves, value of doves, which should equal zero. That's the payoff for being a, just a dove versus a hawk. And then a hawk versus a hawk. Sorry, a dove versus a dove. And the P is hawks. That shouldn't... That should be a plus. Shouldn't it? Yes, that should not be an equal sign. Plus. Solve for P. And I'm not going to go through how to do algebra. But what ends up happening is you get P equals V plus 2T divided by W over divided by sorry, W plus 2T. That's why the F should be a plus. Now we, all we're doing here is we're solving for P. We extend all this out, which you all know how to do the long time ago when you were young. Right? And you isolate the P, and you end up with what we have here, which is P equals V plus 2T over W plus 2T. And now we just basically find, plug some values in. Let's say V equals, uh, what do we got here, uh, 10, and W equals 20, and T equals 5. Where do they get those numbers? Where do they get those numbers? They look nice. They're just numbers. I don't know where they came from. They don't know where they came from. But in a situation where the value of the resource is 10, the cost of a wound is 20, and the cost of displaying is 3, we end up with this. Here's the payoffs. I just solved those payoffs. I put the numbers in. Okay, so first of all, just threw that back into here. No big deal. But then, back into the formula, it's 16 over 26 or 8 thirteenths. So the probability of being a hawk, 8 thirteenths of the animals must be hawks. Or be a hawk eight thirteenths eight thirteenths of the time, be a dove five thirteenths. But the values don't matter. 
The values don't matter. I'm just trying to show you how this kind of stuff is modeled. And you can then determine how you can get two strategies that can coexist. And where does this get sort of practical? This gets practical because we can look at this and say, um, there's two different ways that these animals are doing this. Well, what's going on? Why would there be two different ways? Well, we'll make a strategy A and strategy B. What are the payoffs and the costs for doing one or the other? And then we can determine those actual values if we want in real life. So we can model this and then check it in the real world. That's where it gets cool. As I said, it could be a percentage of the population or it could be a percentage of the time. So, so, so it's actually applicable to the world. Looking at tallest breeding grounds, this is Davies and Holloway, 1979. This, it sort of blew up in the late 70s. They determined what the payoffs were. Maybe you have to go through the payoffs were and the costs were. So change the percentage of male toads found searching in the spawning site during the breeding season. The closed circles are the observed values. Okay? And the open circles are the equations that were made. Uh, the, sorry, the solutions to the equations from Davies and Holloway in 1979, they basically came up with the costs and the benefits for going at different times to the mating grounds if you're a toad. And you can see it's all kinds of different times. We go from the 27th of March to the 6th of April. And there's going to be different peaks and valleys of when to go. Here's a good time, and here's a good time. This isn't that great, but it's better than this. And then you so that's what the model says to do. So they did a payoff matrix, and obviously they've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different times when you can go. And again, there's going to be advantages to going at different times and disadvantages. And I haven't read this paper in 20 years, so I don't remember. They were. But the neat thing is they can draw that curve that's predicted by those equations and then observe what happened. And that's the, the closed circles. And look, it's actually pretty damn good. That's not bad. Right? It's kind of cool. Here's another one. Dung flies. Dung flies are flies that eat poop. So how long should a male fly hang around a pile of shit? This is, I love this. This is great. You just say stuff like that and it's poop. Do you know there's actually a strategy in animal behavior? This allows me to swear totally and say something I couldn't normally say. There's a strategy for an animal that does what's called a sneak copulation, which is mating with a female when the male's away. And the strategy's called being a sneaky fucker. <laughs> and it really, really is. Like you hear that in talks, you see it in papers, and you go... Okay, so I can just say that now. I'm sorry, he was offended by a technical bit. You can do it, right? So it's kind of fun that um, So how long does a male hang around poop until he, as, as it gets older? Because, you know, it starts to age. It gets, you know. So, now, this, is, uh, this was way better. Look at, I think it's the open circles again in the equation. 
what it's predicting. And look at the closed circles, how close this is what actually happens. And this is how, how close they get. Because that's the female. Why do they hang around poop? Because that's where the females come. It's like a sort of weird mating thing. <laughs> wow, look at that. That's pretty good. So this kind of modeling can, can, can give us really good predictions about behavior. I took a class like this in like probably 88, long time ago, I was an undergrad. And we were given a little story about some species. It was totally made up, it wasn't a real species. And what the possible costs and benefits were, and then we were told, model this. That was one of the big questions of the final exam. When, and when you've done this enough, it's actually not that hard. So questions about that, the point is you can model things that can be mixed and pure strategies. Right? Mixed strategies sometimes work, sometimes pure strategies work. So that's a little, this is a brief intro to game theory. Um, if you take 3107, which is the behavioral ecology class, there'll be a lot more math than this. That's about the extent of the math. Um, it's really powerful for explanations. You have to sit and think about the payoffs and costs, but it's actually not that hard. As long as what you do is you simplify it. You say, okay, there's two possible strategies. You're three, and that's it. Right? Now, this kind of fits with what you were asking, which is, what happens if maybe the payoffs change like the values of V and T, let's say, in the Hawks and Dust, but they change depending upon populations of proportions. That is hard to do with simple calculations. Because they're assuming static values for, say, W, V, and T. But what if those values constantly change depending upon, so not about the value of the proportions, but the actual values of the parameters of the model change depending upon the proportion of different strategies used. That is hard to do by hand. However, there are things called dynamic programming models that can do this. All you do is you set up these equations that constantly change, and you obviously do this with a computer. You can't do this by hand. This used to be something no one did because it was too hard, and computer time was really expensive, and most computers couldn't do it. Now you can probably do it with your phone. So they're becoming much more, po much, much more uh, popular. But the interesting thing is, even though this technology exists now for dynamic programming, people um, instead still stick to this whole notion of uh, doing these ESS models because they work, as you saw with those graphs, pretty damn well. Okay. Questions about those things? I'm not ever going to give you a thing that says model this on the, on the test. Okay, some other revolutionary theories. Here is Lamarckism. This is the inheritance of acquired characteristics. The notion here is that you would pass on things you have inherited. That's fine, but they're acquired. So not things you've inherited. You inherit things that your parents acquired. So if giraffes really wanted leaves, they stretched their necks a bit, and then the next giraffe had a longer neck. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> Except that 
in kind of the general public, when you ask them about evolution, think this. Not about the giraffes, they go, oh, no, that's dumb. Or if they like, cut the rat's tail off, well, maybe have a smaller tail. Well, no. But in the future, we will all have giant heads and small bodies. Why? What would the advantage be? Well, no. I should say cave dwelling fish, not cave swelling fish. I'm sure those cave dwelling fish think caves are swell. <laughs> Swell. It's 1956, and I'm 11. Golly, these caves are swell. Um, <laughs> why do cave dwelling fish not have eyes? It's not because they don't use them. But that's that'd be a Lamarckian idea. Well, they don't lose. They don't use them, so they just go away. What's 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 the better explanation? The Darwinian explanation of why cave dwelling fish don't have Eyes. Um, because it had too much cost. Maybe? Having eyes is a cost. Eyes are expensive. Yeah, they're physiologically, they're hard to build. Uh, they get infected. What's the benefit of having eyes in pure darkness? I'm thinking none. <laughs> right? So it's advantageous to. No, I have eyes. We don't use our appendix anymore, so it is disappearing. Angie, go ahead. Um, what about bats? What about bats? Because they're in caves all the time, and they use their hearing the sonar. to see. Yeah. So why do they still have they, they, But they still do. Bats aren't nearly as bad at vision as we think they are, and they also do spend time in, not in the lightless environments. If they're in a, in a bat cave, which just sounds great because of the comics and the movies, <laughs> um, there may be very little light in there, but if they're flying around at night even, there's moonlight, there's starlight, a little bit of vision will help. Whereas a cave-dwelling fish, it's deep on the ocean floor in a cave. There's no light. There's a difference there. New question. So you've heard this, we don't use our appendix anymore, so it's disappeared. No, it's not because we don't use it. It doesn't confer an advantage. And up until very recently, it confer a great disadvantage out of that. Because you can get appendicitis. And people, you know, like, you know, how many people here have, have had their appendix, appendices removed? Everybody? Yeah, a few of you, right? So look, you didn't die. Used to be people died from that. Because your appendix would burst and you'd die. There'd be just an infection everywhere, and you just, now they go, oh, stomach hurts. It's right about here. It's been, you go in and go, oh, well, we're going to take a look. It's probably appendicitis. They go in, they take it out, and you go home. You should be, you die. It's going to bring no advantage, they disadvantage. Right? Orthogenesis is this notion that there's a planned evolution, that everything's trying to get somewhere. There's no plan, it just is. This is a plan of gravity. It's the idea of the evolutionary ladder, right? That like, we're tough because we're awesome. Below us, some sort of chick 
Below that, uh, I don't know, other mammals perhaps. Below that, oh, perhaps birds. I don't know. Then at the very bottom, I don't know, single-celled, non-plant or animal. But they all want to be people. There's no plan. There's no goal. Evolution just is. It just is. But if you heard the term evolutionary ladder, you hear that and tell a person they're, they're wrong. Um, another one, intelligent design. This is just creationism with a new name. Right? It's not a scientific theory to say there's a designer. Because how are you going to say, how are you going to prove to me there's, there's a designer? How can I disprove there's a designer? The designer has to be omnipotent and omniscient, right? Because it's God. I mean, I'm not religious, but that's how gods work, right? Not like Roman gods that were kind of fallible and such. I mean like God, God. That God, God can do stuff. Please don't take this the wrong way. God's magic, right? Like, it can do things that, that, what I'm saying is it can do things that are completely not understandable in miracles, basically, right? Okay? That's true, right? I mean, I, I'm not religious, but I hear about miracles. I somehow passed second year stats in grad school. I'm thinking, <laughs> that might be a miracle. So what happens is we've got something that's omniscient and omnipotent. It doesn't have to follow the laws of the universe, does it? It doesn't have to. And if it doesn't have to, how can we ever look at it with science? So it's not a scientific theory. You can't disprove the existence of God. You just can't. Because maybe God made you not do it. Oh, damn. That blows the whole deal, doesn't it? So that's why it's not a scientific theory. You can believe it all you want, but it doesn't belong in a science class. Just like people don't go into church and say, I don't think, again, I haven't been to church in a long time. Um, But do people go in and say, okay, before you start, I have a series of experiments I'd like you to run to show me there's a God. No one says that. That doesn't work that way. It's not right. Because right? faith is me. Faith means I believe something because I believe it. Just like, so we have to prove something here that we can't prove or disprove. It just is to people that believe that. So it's not a scientific theory. The problem with it is that it's, it's pushed by people that have a very strong point of view, and that strong point of view is a very, it's a religious point of view, and a political point of view it is not a science point of view. Um, a, a group called Descent from Darwin, I believe they were called, um, got from the Discovery Institute, which is a creationism kind of bunch. They found some scientists that disputed evolution by natural selection. So another group found more people they have found so far more people with biology PhDs named Steve. They picked the name Steve, and they signed this thing. And they found like 10 times as many Steves so far, at least, or hundreds of them, as compared to these few scientists. And they, they included all kinds of scientists. Um, there is no controversy. It's in, however, it's an interesting sociological, psychological phenomenon, the idea of the, the, the sort of debate about this. But the debate is not a scientific one. The science is done. Everybody, this, evolution is as true as gravity. 
Believe me, also, if someone could prove there was a God with science, tomorrow they would win a Nobel Prize. Right? And people go, wow, awesome. It doesn't matter. It's not going to happen because of by definition. Question. All right. So the introductory stuff is pretty much done now. And on Wednesday, we can move on and talk about other podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.